and welcome to The Big Schmear, a podcast about Jewish food, its history, and culture. I'm Beth Schenker, your host, and for this episode, I've traveled to Detroit, Michigan to attend the second annual Jewish Food Festival, organized by Hazon, an ongoing resource for individuals and institutions to engage in Jewish life and create a more sustainable world for all through Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education. In the last episode, I gave you a tour of the food festival, which brought in over 5,000 people. I interviewed a number of participating vendors to give you an idea of the depth and breadth of the event. In this episode, I'm still on the festival grounds, but it's late in the afternoon and most all the festival goers have headed home and the last of the vendors are packing up their booths. I can't believe my luck, but I managed to nab Liz Alpern, co-founder of the Gefilteria, before she left for the airport. I've been hearing about Liz and the Gefilteria before I ever launched my podcast, but I've never been in the same town at the same time to manage an interview with her. And I don't think she knows this, but she was really the reason I made the trip to Detroit. Before I introduce Liz, I need to give you a quality recording alert. What I thought would be a quiet location for my interview turned out to be kind of a crazy space and not so quiet. In addition to a noisy background, you'll also hear some odd buzzing from time to time. I hope this hasn't dissuaded you from listening, because my time with Liz was so good, I had to include this episode. To be fair to you and Liz, I hope to catch up with her again for a quieter conversation sometime in the not-too-distant future. She's the kind of person who will always be doing something new and interesting. Now to get to my guest. Liz Alpern is the co-founder of the Gefilteria of New York. Her career in food is driven by her passion for bringing people together. Based in Brooklyn, she travels around the globe as a cook, recipe tester, educator, and entrepreneur. She holds an MBA from Baruch College and is a faculty member of the Culinary Entrepreneurship Program at the International Culinary Center in New York City. She's been featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for food and wine and was named one of the Forward 50 for 2016. Welcome, Liz. So one of the questions I like to ask chefs in particular is, have you had a food fail? And um, I ask that for a couple of reasons. One is sometimes some amazing new thing comes out of that, but mostly for people who are not professional chefs if they're trying something and they fail the first time, it's like, oh, I'll never do that again. So when we, we got here this morning, the first thing I did was put together the um, cheese filling for the blintzes, which is farmer's cheese with some lemon zest, a little bit of cream cheese, sugar, some egg, really simple. And um, generally, I would make the cheese from scratch um, for the filling. Um, but because we had really limited time, we, we had about a two-hour window to do everything today. You know, they, they said, well, why don't we just pick up fresh farmer's cheese, and then you'll, you'll demonstrate the cheese and show everybody how to make it, but we don't necessarily have time to make all the cheese for 70 people, you know, in two hours with all the other stuff we have to do. Um, so I said, okay, sure, pick up the cheese, no problem. So I came in, and I mi mixed this filling, as I said, and, uh, and I tasted it, and it tasted a little funky, but the women, the Ethiopian chefs that were here were right next to, next to me, and they had this big vat of injera 
batter um, open and it was really fermented and funky smelling. So I just thought, oh, well, you know, this cheese stuff smells funky because my nose is completely filled with this funky smell of the injera. And then a little while later, I moved away to try the filling again and it was totally weird. Um, and it turns out that the farmer's cheese that they had purchased was this sort of probiotic, live cultured farmer's cheese. And it was, I really, I actually spit it out. I spit it out. And I don't spit things out. So so I said, okay, <laughs> well. So glad you checked it first. I, I know. And I, and I had this moment where I thought I could have not because this is such a simple recipe that it's not even a recipe. I mean, it's literally just you know, fresh farmer's cheese and some lemons. It's so easy. So we we got all hands on deck and got some great veggies from the from the market that um, that were in season, some summer squash and some tomatoes and some zucchini and onion and, and a bunch of fresh herbs, and we fried it up. And then we made a small batch of cheese, um, and we, we put it all together, and I thought the savory filling was great. I was really happy with it. It was fantastic. So if at first you don't succeed, try something else. It's going to work. And I think that actually um, the lesson from that is actually more knowing that things are going to go wrong, and they, they always do, um, when you're cooking under pressure. And so you just have to just, just pivot. But I, I was thinking about a food fail, which is that when I first started pickling, I was not terribly successful at making crunchy cucumbers. And um, I, I even think I write about it in the book that I really could not get my cucumbers crunchy, and it's because I just didn't. I, you know, there's so many variables to pickling that you can't get it right. And, and I teach pickling now all over the world. And I always tell people, please, if it doesn't turn out OK, try again. Please try again. There's so many variables. There's no way you can control all of them. Um, but once you start to understand all, like, all the variables, you can start to control them a little bit better. And, um, and it's completely worth trying again and again and again. So, Two great stories about just don't be discouraged, really, is what yeah. it's about. So, Liz, tell me how, how you got to be a food person. Like, what's your, what was the path? It's a good question, and um, the first thing is to say that I didn't grow up in a cooking family, and so it's not like I, from day one, was at the apron strings of my mother or grandmother. Um, by the time I was, I was the youngest grandchild uh, on my mother's side, and so by the time I was old enough to be aware. I mean, my grandmother was like done in the kitchen, even though she was pretty well known for being a good cook. Uh, and my mom uh, did, you know, we always ate healthy, but she was certainly not a cook. So I didn't do any of that. And um, so one of the jokes that I like to tell is that I, I think I got into food partially uh, out of some need to kind of correct the past <laughs> of that. I just needed to nurture myself. So I ended up you know, cooking all the time, uh, professionally especially. But the real story is that uh, when I went away to undergrad, I went to school in Canada. I went to McGill University in Montreal, and you didn't live in a dorm. There were no dorms. It's a different kind of a different system. So I had to start cooking for myself from the time I was 17. And uh, and I, you know, I was always into being healthy and thoughtful about what I ate. Just you know. I don't know, I guess I just was. And, um, and so I, you know, I really cared about cooking. And, and what ultimately happened was I started cooking for other people. So I would cook Shabbat dinners or I would cook, uh, you know, my house was just the kind of house from the first, you know, from the first days of being on my own where people would come over and get fed. Um, and I didn't 
totally know what I was doing, but I, I was excited enough about it to try. And I really loved hosting. I loved having people over and feeding them. And so I got better and better just out of necessity because, you know, when you have to feed people, you also want to feed them well. And then I also, um, there was no kosher bakery nearby where I lived in, in Montreal, and I started baking challah and selling it for Shabbat because I... I got really into baking challah, and people said it's so good, and there was nowhere to get challah. It was sort of this need. So that was always, that was like my first business, was selling challah and bicycling it around Montreal, the student neighborhood. Um, and so that was the beginning of just learning how to cook, and it was really just out of necessity. And then I made myself a promise. After I graduated school, I said, oh, okay, I'm going to try and get a job, and if in two years I don't want to get a job, then you know, I don't like working in a normal environment anymore. I can, I give myself permission to get into food full time. And that's what happened. <laughs> and, and so did it take you two years? It did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was doing a lot of cooking on my own during those two years, but I was not working in food at all professionally. Uh-huh. And so how did Gefilteria start? Did you meet these friends and you all chatted about it and it's, oh, let's do this? Or it had to be more complicated than that. Yeah, you know, um, so Jeffrey who I wrote my book with and who I do everything with. Um, he and I didn't really know each other, um, but we had a lot of points of intersection. And what happened was we kept bumping into each other over and over and over again. And whenever we would bump into each other, we would talk about Jewish food and our love for Jewish food and our, essentially, our sadness around the fact that food was exploding and was really exciting and then chefs were becoming celebrities. So anytime we got together or saw each other, we would talk about this and eventually we started joking, you know, wouldn't it be funny if there was like, you know, you could get sustainably sourced gefilte fish, like, <laughs> wouldn't that be hilarious? Like, imagine that. And, you know, that was hilarious to us and then it became very serious to us. So we spent a year just cooking together and saying, well, what would it look like to make gefilte fish better? How could that look like any thing, you know, um, and we were both working in food, so it felt, it just felt right to just, you know, try and collaborate in the kitchen together, but with no real purpose in mind. You know, we didn't tell anybody we were up to this. And then our third business partner at that time, who was a childhood friend of Jeffrey's, heard about what we were doing, and she said, you know, I think this could be a business. I really do. And ultimately, she kind of pushed us and joined the team, and, and we made it something bigger than just an experimental you know, kitchen something. We, we always had the mission of wanting to see these foods come back to center stage or to their, you know, to their, to their glory, but I'm not sure we totally understood how to do it until we started thinking about the idea of having a business. And from there, it's, we did not think we'd be doing this five years later. You know, It was still kind of experimental for a long time. So not experimental anymore. It's no. serious stuff. Yeah, it's serious. Can you tell me, tell me about your gefilte fish and what makes it different than, I mean, there's, I'm sure, the obvious of the gross jelly in the jars and everything, but tell me what makes your gefilte fish special and why you spent so much time perfecting that recipe. Well, we, when, when we got together, Jeffrey and I just started talking about Jewish food. For us, we felt like gefilte fish was the ult ultimate symbol of how bad things had gotten with Ashkenazi cooking. So we, we thought of that jar of gefilte fish on the shelf as literally the bottom of, 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 the of yeah, of the barrel. I mean, it was literally so, I mean, and, and the reason that it was so depressing was not just because it's gross, but people really like it, but I don't. But um, the, the reason it was depressing is actually because 
gefilte fish was once a symbol of resourcefulness of our people. It was a symbol of how far one fish would go to feed a family. So you'd, you'd get a little fish, you know, you'd take out the inside, stuff it with all these fillers like eggs and onions and breadcrumbs, and then you'd stuff the, the fish meat back into the skin. And all of a sudden, this tiny fish became a lot bigger. And, and people would save up, I mean, our ancestors would save up all week just to get that fish. And so to see that dish, that sort of really clever, interesting dish, be stuffed into a jar with synthetic gel, it, it was tragic, I'd say. And the truth was, is that people loved to point to gefilte fish as a reason for the decline of Ashkenazi cuisine. They'd say, well, who would ever want to eat this or cook this? And so we felt like if we could start with that bottom of the barrel, then we could do anything from that. So we, we, you know, we, always, it's, we always think of gefilte fish was our real inspiration. It was our jumping off point. But it led us very quickly into you know, the entire Ashkenazi culinary canon. Uh, so our gefilte fish that we sell commercially is a couple things. So one axis that we really wanted to change was just the aesthetics. Um, we felt like those balls in the jar and balls on a plate was like just not an appetizing thing. Um, so we started baking ours in a terrine uh, mold in a loaf, and um, it's not without precedent, so that's not totally unique. But the, the way that people generally think of Ashkenazi, they think of traditional gefilte fish as being poached fish balls, like in a fish broth, but um, there's lots of traditions of baking it. So we brought that back because we thought it would be, it looks a lot nicer to have a slice on a plate than a blob on a plate. Um, and we also make ours to layer. So we use uh, white fish and pike on the bottom layer, and on the top layer we use salmon and steelhead trout. So you actually get a beautiful look of two colors. And then the other piece was, well, what are our values today? We really care about our sourcing of our fish. So we use the highest quality fish, the most sustainably sourced fish that we could get, uh, as opposed to kind of the scraps that you can turn into fish balls. Um, and so, you know, so the aesthetics and the sourcing were very important. And in our cookbook, we have also some variations to make the fish a little bit more interesting. So we have a smoked white fish, gefilte fish, and a uh, herbed gefilte fish terrine. Um, and so those aren't commercially available, but those are ones you can make at home very easily, really and truly very easily. And, and so there we add a little more variation with flavor as well. So my experience of meeting people who are not Jewish, who didn't grow up in a Jewish household, in other words, didn't grow up in an Ashkenazi area eating gefilte fish, generally find it really disgusting when they're at your Passover table and they really don't want to eat that mm -hmm. stuff. So what I would say is if you even look at pictures of your gefilte fish. It's so beautiful and doesn't look like a blob on your plate. Do you, have a, do you have a recommendation about how people who are not familiar with eating gefilte fish might approach that as a positive experience? Yeah, I think that one thing that people should do in general is make their own horseradish. So gefilte fish is traditionally served with horseradish, and people get really excited about horseradish. I, I, I really can't tell you how much people want to talk about it. They love it. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It really doesn't matter. People love gefilte They love the horseradish. So I think that actually one thing is to totally change your mindset and think about, hey, how can I you know, make my own horseradish, grind my own fresh horseradish root, just as a way of getting excited about this dish, um, because gefilte fish and horseradish are, you know, they're partners in crime, they right? Are, they, they are. They are. 
So I think that doing the making the horseradish yourself is going to change everything else that's happening for you. Um, using fresh horseradish, fresh beets, fresh carrots. I mean, it's so great. And I think that the other thing is that, like anything, if you are somebody who likes to experiment and cook, uh, gefilte fish is a great challenge. My partner just made gefilte fish for the first time for Passover, was extremely skeptical. Her family was extremely skeptical. And it was such a hit at the table, I cannot even tell you. It, like, all went. They had, she had to, like, hide some <laughs> to eat it the next day. And she was from a completely anti-gefilte fish household. And I was... I knew that that would happen, so I wasn't worried because I have been through this experience before. But it was, it was one of those things where it's like, if you want to try something new, this is a great thing to try. <laughs> I love that. So not necessarily related to gefilte fish, but what would you say are like the five tools in your kitchen that you just cannot live without? Okay, food processor. I love my food processor. I always use my food processor. Sometimes people say to me, I don't have a food processor, and I tell them it's time to change that experience. I think the food, I don't have a Vitamix, I don't have a blender, but I have a food processor, and I use it all the time. I have a small and a big one. I love it. There's so much. That aforementioned horseradish, boom. It's easy. It's five minutes. Gavilta fish, I make it in the horse, in the processor. Wow. Batter, dough, I make it in the food processor. Everything. So I love a food processor. In the theme of food processor, I'd say immersion blender. I love an immersion blender. I'm a big soup maker. So for me, having an immersion blender just makes making every kind of soup really easy. I always keep a lot of glass jars. I'm a big pickler. Wide mouth glass jars so that you can, you can always pickle at the ready. I love a half gallon wide mouth glass jar. I've got a bunch of those, use them all the time. Oh, and I'd say just a rubber spatula, heat-proof heat rubber spatula. We were talking about that in the workshop today that, I mean, I just always, it works on every surface. It's great for stirring. It's good for frying. You know, heat-proof rubber spat for everything. All right. Well, thank you. I'm also wondering, besides gefilte fish, is there any other major Jewish food that you have reimagined or that you have plans that you're thinking wow, this is, we need to think about this. What ways can we explore this kind of food? Or do you feel like, okay, you have a great uh, repertoire and you're good to go and you'll just make the most of what you've been working on, which is fantastic. Well, you know, in the cookbook, there's over 100 recipes. So, yeah, I would say gefilte fish is really just one out of 100, and there's so many more. I think I could do it forever. There's so, every single time I'm traveling, people ask me about recipes like mandel bread and babka, for example, two desserts that are classic Jewish desserts. I have not tried to reimagine them. What I will say is that I never try and step on anybody's toes. Um, I have a friend who's coming out with a book next month about Jewish baking. I just made her babka recipe. I don't feel like I really need to do much more than make her babka recipe for the rest of my life. But other things that I've reimagined, we've, we reimagined stuffed cabbage. Um, that's one of my favorite recipes in the cookbook. Instead of using sauerkraut, which is a traditional ingredient in, uh, in stuffed cabbage often, um, we use kimchi that we ferment. Um, so it's spicy. Um, it's, it's really the same quality of, um, of sour and, and salt. But I just think it, that kick of the kimchi, the extra, I mean, it's just so much more complex. Um, and we make our own kimchi that we call Ashkenazi kimchi. I love it. Because um, it's sort of very similar to sauerkraut, but with a twist, you know, um, and using a kimchi method. And so I love that. 
that dish so, so, so much. Uh, I think that uh, we've, we've come up with two great reimaginings of cholent, but I think that you could probably explore that endlessly, um, the Sabbath stew. So we've done a, you know, a Hungarian and goulash-inspired cholent and a kanji-inspired vegetarian cholent. But I'm really interested in exploring more uh, gluten-free stuff, actually. Somebody asked about that today, and I, yeah. And I, I think that that's interesting. Um, there is a great book that came out about that, but I'm interested in being able to be a bit more crafty about a, you know, a blintz that's gluten-free or a cake that's gluten-free or a challah that's gluten-free. It interests me. I think it's worth exploring. I'm not gluten-free, but I think it's it's interesting. I mean, the list could go on forever. There's about a hundred soups that I haven't even made yet, so I could just do soup. I, I really, my secret dream is just to make soup all day, every day, so Whoa. maybe one day. Oh, that's a good dream. Yeah, I don't think it's that far off. <laughs> I think Especially I could do it. person on the other side of that uh, soup ladle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it could happen. Yeah. So I know you travel a lot and do a lot of different kinds of things. Can you tell me, are there other projects that you're working on that m- might have gefilteria as the main thing? Or maybe, you, maybe that's a, a starting off point for other projects that you've done? But I, I'd just like, to ha- ex- just like to find out what other things you're you're interested in and where your food path is going? Well, a couple different ways. I've got a few things going on right now. Um, One of them is I teach at the International Culinary Center in downtown Manhattan in a culinary entrepreneurship program. So it's um, it's a sort of a business boot camp for people who want to start businesses in food, Um, and I and I lead the the track for people who want to um, start food product businesses. So not necessarily restaurants, but want to launch products. And I love that. I love keeping up my business skills. And I the students are just awesome. I mean, they're all adults who work in the field. So we just have a great time. I love doing that. I'm doing, uh, right now, I'm, I'm throwing a party in Brooklyn called Queer Soup Night. And it's, it's a fundraiser that I started around the inauguration in January. I was pretty upset. And I, and I thought, well, what do I do when I'm upset? You know, I, I make soup. <laughs> so I started this party. Um, and we've done three so far. We've got three more planned in the fall. And, and essentially, we get chefs like me and other people. We make soup. Everybody volunteers. It's all donation-based. So people come in. They party. They buy drinks. They eat soup throw money in the jar for the soup and uh, and we've raised we raised a couple thousand dollars already and um, each party more than that I think and it's a it's a you know a party kind of for and by the queer community you know but it's really for everybody and um, and the idea is just to have a fundraiser but in a really positive space and there's no ticket price it's just pay what you can so the idea is to keep a low barrier to entry nourish people and get people excited to kind of organize and talk about what's going on in the world a little bit um, while contributing to something good and getting to eat. And so how would people, if they wanted to keep up with those events, how would they find out about them? There is a Facebook page called Queer Soup Night and an Instagram Queer Soup Night. Um, I'm also doing some work now with the Michigan-based nonprofit called Fair Food Network. I worked for them years ago, and I'm back doing some work for them because I've been really feeling like I want to make sure that I continue to be a part of of food justice, the food justice movement. And sometimes when you're deep in a cookbook project, you're, you're a little disconnected from the real world. And when I emerged from that, I realized I, I missed kind of being down on the ground and doing that work. So uh, I'm doing some, some interesting work in New Hampshire with that nonprofit, actually, and love, love working with them and love everything that they do. Well, that's very cool stuff. And then um, please tell our listeners where they can find out about Gefilteria, where they can find out about purchasing your food if they don't live in New York. 
So tell, tell people where they can find out about Gefilteria and where they can find out about purchasing some of your products. Um, well, there's two great ways to keep up with us. And the best way, I'd say, is to get on our mailing list. So if you go to gefilteria.com, G-E-F-I-L-T-E-R-I-A.com, our mailing list is right on the homepage. We really do not send a lot of emails. It's more about when, like, there's a major bunch of events coming up or, you know, when Gefilte Fish is on sale, where it's on sale. It's it's really like uh, every maybe once a month you're going to get this email. But that is, I think, the best way because we always try and put a lot in each email. So, you know, get on our email list, following us on social media. We're Gefilteria on everything, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we try and regularly update with um, everything we're doing, where we're traveling. Um, on gefilteria.com, we do have a calendar of events that we also keep 90% updated, some, unless something's last minute added. Yeah. Great. Well, it looks like we're out of time. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Schmear. If you'd like to send me a note, you can write to me at this email address, beth at thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, where you can download past episodes of this podcast and find recipes for my guests. Our engineer is Steve Robinson, and our theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo. This music can be heard on their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Schmear so you won't miss any episodes. Thank you for listening, and happy eating. Happy eating.